The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Rhythm is a Dancer. We've got the latest transfers and listener question answers. Elsewhere, the day that Adebayor scored one and set up four. And World Cups, we take a nod from the Supreme Court and turn the clock back to the 50s for our latest tournament tribute. All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener, Thursday, the 30th of June, 2022. And on Totally Today, we've got Duncan Alexander. Hi, Duncan. Hi, James. Charlie Accrochet is also here on his way to Wimbledon. Hi, James. For the tennis. And joining us live from Brazil, Tim Vickery. Tim. Hello, very good morning to you. Um, I don't know if you know the the early 70s hit. I think it was a hit for the pretenders. Christy Hyam did a very good cover in the late 80s, Thin Line Between Love and Hate. The first line of the song, it's five o'clock in the morning. Ah, and uh, I can vouch for the fact that at five o'clock in the morning, there is a very, very thin line between love and hate. Very good yeah, morning, you're to saying, you. saying, Tim. That song ends with somebody hospitalised brutally, That's of right. course. We'll, That's we'll right. have to see. We'll have to see how today plays out, listener. Mm. Ooh, Abdullah Bashiti's in with the early question. Tim, thank you very much, by the way, for being up at 5 a.m., Possibly on your way to bed. I don't know. You live in Brazil. That kind of thing happens. <laughs> but here's Abdullah's question anyway. He's got two. We'll go with one of them for for right now. Tim, who's your favourite Brazilian player of all time? Go. Mm, it was possibly Toninho Cerezo. Do you remember him? Mm. from He was uh, from San the 82 Doria, side. Scudetto winner. Yeah, Roma against uh, against mm. Liverpool in uh, mm. in um, in the 84. Uh, and I, I love the way that... that History has been so harsh on him. Uh, I is love it? the way that, yeah, because he made a mistake for the second goal for Italy in that fabulous game between Italy and and and, and Brazil in the nineteen eighty two World Cup, and was never allowed to to forget it. Uh, so, and, and I, I remember being at Wembley in ninety two for the Barcelona Sampdoria final when Barcelona and he was he was like thirty eight I think at the time. And Barcelona paid him the immense compliment of putting their best midfielder, little Baquero, on him, one-on-one, just to cancel him out of the game. I've also got a thing for Zizinho, who we may talk about later on if we if we go to the 1950 World Cup. If we go to the 1950 World Cup. Because he was the best player of that World Cup. He was the idol of the young Pelé. And I had a chance to meet him later on in life. And he was just a splendid kind of bon viveur who uh, he, he, he got a pair of dark glasses uh, to kind of hide the, the the effects of the previous day's whiskey. Uh, and uh, when he put on the dark glasses, he looked a lot like Ray Charles. So uh, I've got a bit, bit of a thing for him as well. Brilliant. Well, a lovely answer. More from Tim. Possibly more from the 1950s World Cup later on, although chances look slim, potentially. Uh, Charlie, you're on your way to Wimbledon. Why? Well, I'm doing a podcast there. Are you? Uh, the official Wimbledon podcast. You do the, the yeah, yeah. Tennis is my other big. What, Joe Kinnear or who? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, was waiting for that. Um, yeah, yeah. No. Um, so I'll be be down at Centre Court later today. All right. Well, uh, I hope, hope that. Uh, hope you have an enjoyable one there. And Duncan, we've got loads to get through before all of that. What, what are you going to be up to today? Just out of interest. Uh, when we're going to Wimbledon, I can no. confirm. No, um, no, I'm more. Who's your favourite Brazilian player of all time, Duncan? Uh, probably Mirandinha, I think. Is it because I was very excited as a child when he came to the the first division? Uh, it was it was very exotic, um, and yeah, it just seemed you know quite outlandish in the in the world of late eighties English football to have uh, a player like him come in. Excellent. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Well, poised to become Arsenal supporters' favourite Brazilian player is potentially Gabriel Jesus. He's the name on everyone's lips there around the Emirates. Excitingly, uh, watching Arsenal play out from the back isn't going to be the only time supporters say Gabriel Jesus in future. (laughs) Uh, now, Tim, you've you've courted controversy by going on various UK media outlets and saying that <laughs> this might not be the ideal move 
for Arsenal? Just, you know, briefly, no, do you want to no, just no, flesh no, that no, out I for think, us? Yeah, I think that's a, a somewhat tabloid reading of, <laughs> of that's what, what I do. I've been trying <laughs> to say. Uh, although, yeah, it does bring you head to head with the... Uh, Oh, football supporters can be so tiring, can't they? They they, they have to see the world. They, they they have to believe that everyone sees football from from their emotionally unbalanced perspective. So uh, any 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 doubt cast uh, has to be part of the worldwide conspiracy against uh, against Arsenal Football Club. Now there are many times as a mm. Tottenham fan that I'm very glad to be part of uh, a worldwide conspiracy against Arsenal Football Club, but not. Right. On, on this occasion, no, it's it's just uh, a, a doubt about what he is. I think he's he's at the crossroads. Right, and it's undeniable, and the, the fact that he's leaving Man City now is is uh, evidence that he hasn't grown into what we thought he was going to be when he first joined Man City and really hit the ground running, which was Sergio Aguero's replacement. Uh, he carries the trauma of a World Cup as Brazil's centre-forward without scoring a goal. Now, mm. That's a huge trauma for him. And, and again, the, the fan doesn't understand the importance of the World Cup to the player, I think. The fan thinks that the club is should, is, should be his, his, his only priority. And what happened four years ago is, uh, let's get over it. But sometimes it's not, not, not easy to get over it. And if you're playing centre-forward for Brazil and you, you don't manage a goal, um, some much maligned Brazil centre-forwards have... Uh, have uh, done it a little bit better in the past, right? So, th- so there's scored, the doubt. Scored at the World Cup, didn't he? He did, yeah. As did Sergio in uh, in in eighty two. Yeah. I so mean, the, Jesus the, has. The, sorry, you know, just just to leap in, I was just curious what Charlie makes of this because he has proved an effective attacking player for City post that World Cup. He may not be the centre forward that people thought he was going to grow into, but is that what Arsenal need, Charlie? Um, I think it's been a really challenge you know Arsenal have known they've needed a striker for a long long time and you know I think people have been saying you know they just need to bring in a a 30 goal a season striker as if they're Mm. they're plentiful and that's (laughs) an easy thing to do I mean there are very very few of them around Um, what Arteta wants is a very energetic mobile high pressing front four that can keep teams penned in and between them contribute you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily one gets loads of goals that they're all getting sort of you know, 10, 15, let's say, in the league, um, which I think Jesus is, has shown he's capable of those sorts of numbers. So they're kind of doubling down on a plan A, I think, rather than going for a new type of striker. And also, you know, the difference for them having someone as mobile as Jesus coming off the back of Lacazette, whose mobility was pretty awful I do think it'll be interesting for me there are slight shades and I'm not comparing the two as players necessarily but Danny Welbeck when he joined Arsenal in 2014 was coming off a period where he had won a lot with United and shown flashes of brilliance but was never quite first choice and the hope was that okay but when he comes to Arsenal and he plays regularly we'll kind of get to see the real him and I think there's a hope with Jesus that he'll be very much the first choice playing every week um, and that that will galvanise him. But as Welbeck's shown, it doesn't always work out like that. But I I can Mm. see the logic and why they've gone for him. It's like, do you go and get perhaps a more traditional striker from elsewhere that that isn't Premier League proven? Or do you get Jesus, who who very much is? And Arteta is kind of using a a Pep Guardiola operating system from a couple of seasons ago. So it kind of, it does make sense, I think. Um, Yes, possibly not the perfect signing, but there's, that doesn't really exist in football. So I think, I think it's good. I'm I'm excited to see how it turns out. Mm. All right. Joe says, Tim, can you tell us how Julian Alvarez or Alvarez will do in the Premier League? The Argentine striker who City actually signed back in January but more recently hit the news by scoring six goals in a single Copa Libertadores game. Tim? Yeah, didn't get any, any last night, though, in his, uh, one of his very last games. Um, they lost 1-0 away to Vélez Sarsfield in the first leg of, uh, of the knockout game in, in the Libertadores. So I think next week at home, it's going to be a huge game for him. Um, they need to, uh, to overturn that. I think that, that's going to be his, his farewell game. Um, I've loved watching him develop. He's uh, he's so clever. He's, he's one of those players who 
as he brings the ball down, he's already dribbling. He's, he isn't just bringing the ball under control. He's already manoeuvring it into a position where he, where he wants to do something with it. He's, he's mobile. He, in, in some ways, he's, he's a very pep striker, I think. In that he's a striker with the soul of a midfielder. A wonderful combinations player. Thinks so quickly. He moves quickly enough, but he thinks even quicker. Um, so I'm very excited about him. I've watched him grow gradually. When he's 22, which these days is relatively old for you know to be leaving straight for South America to go to a big European club uh, and that's because Gajardo done an exceptional job at, at River Plate has nurtured him with 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 such love it is going to be a shock in terms of the speed at which he's going to he's going to have to operate he's he's he's, he's going to have to up that but I'm I'm optimistic and he's he's so clever and you can just see him fitting into a to a Guardiola type side and the the, the the danger I suppose with with Holland coming as well is that he might mm. get squeezed out he might not get game time that would certainly be be a worry and these things are always a gamble it's one of the reasons why the uh, the European clubs are so reluctant to buy once the players reach 22 and over it, it's it's harder to to uh, to get them to to adapt but I, I have I have high hopes for him I've loved watching him I'm, I'm very sorry to see him go but it's the inevitable next step in your career can I just ask quickly, Tim, on Marquinhos, on continuing the topic of mm. young South American forwards coming over to the Premier League? I mean, I, I guess the hope from Arsenal fans is he'll be kind of the next Martinelli. Um, yeah. Just wondered sort of your read on him and that as a signing. He hasn't got a great deal behind him. He's uh, It's less than a year ago now that he, he emerged really in one game. That was for Sao Paulo away to Racing in the Libertadores when he, he, he had this fantastic game. Left-footed, it reminds me a little bit of Douglas Costa, who uh, was at Bayern Munich and was at Juventus. Uh, it's quite well built, left foot, um, squat on the ball, strong on the ball, can operate all across the the attacking line. Um, but he he hasn't had a great deal of football in that year, and both because of injuries and San Paolo struggled, and Hernan Crespo, who was his coach, lost his job. They were they were flirting at the wrong end of the table. And he, he became, when he was fit, he became more of an impact sub. So he doesn't have a great deal behind him. A little bit like Martinelli, who, you know, when, when they bought him, had never been anywhere near the Brazil first division. So they took a flyer on Martinelli and they're taking a flyer on Marquinhos. So I, I would be very surprised if he's Premier League ready within a year. Hmm. Meanwhile, if it's Brazilians in Premier League transfers you're after, Richarlison to Spurs, Charlie. Is, is this, first of all, is this the Kane backup? sorted at last and secondly how much trouble are Everton in well starting with the first I think it's a really really good signing first of all I think it's a real sort of statement of like Spurs have never really strengthened positions of strength you know typically if they've made big signings it's been because players have left or they've got a weakness I mean you think the last few years and Dombele and Lacelso came in for big sums was because you know, that followed Dembele going and Ericsson's anticipated departure. Then Romero last summer was because Alderweireld had gone, Vertonghen had gone the year before. They've To do this, when they've got such a good front three, I think really sends out the message that Conte wants to say, which is we're not just content with, you know, tussling for fourth. We want to do more than that. And I think at the same time, it is a really elegant solution. I've always felt that, that the, the, the problem with getting a Kane backup is... We've heard it so many times. No one wants to go there and just sit on the bench. So to me, the solution has always been we'll get someone like Son, not as good as him necessarily, but who can play both with and instead of Kane. And that's what Richardson can do. He can play up top uh, as the number nine and he can play on either flank. And so I think he'll get plenty of games. You know, Spurs are in the Champions League, five subs this season, constricted schedule because of the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's a really smart move for the club, and and I think he'll play a lot for Everton. I mean, they they, they are in, they they do have issues. They've made I think it's more than hundred million losses the, each of the previous three years, and then this year they basically were resigned to the fact they needed to sell one of Richarlison or Calvert Lewin this summer to balance the books. Obviously, Calvert Lewin had so many injuries last season that I think everyone. And we talked about Arsenal striker search. I think he was someone they definitely looked at, but decided. You know, given all the injuries, can we take that punt? So they've kept on to him, but Richarlison is going to go. And I think their hope is that with that done, 
that alleviates some of the concerns they have. And there's this deadline of today, the end of the financial year. So the hope is that they can get it done and it can go towards this current year's set of accounts. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a big blow for them losing a player who got, I think it was 10 goals and five assists and really important goals as well. Mark Carey, our colleague um, at The Athletic, he did a piece on most valuable goals to points and Richardson, I think was top up until right towards the end of the season. So, you know, he's a, he's a big moments player as well. There was a point in uh, October 2020, obviously that season started a, a little later, but um, where the most goals and assists by Premier League players in all competitions at that point was Kane with 12, Calvert-Lewin with eight, Son with seven and Richarlison with six. Um, so Spurs now have three of those players, which is, <laughs> as Charlie was saying, solid strength and depth. And I also think mm. the, the other thing that's great about Richarlison is that he's one of those players that just really connects with fans and, you know, he mm. really... He really took on Everton's kind of uh, eternal rivalry with Liverpool to to his heart with a lot of stuff. And I I think he will relish the North London derbies uh, quite a lot. Well, the funny thing is with him is he's wound Spurs fans up loads before with his sort of antics. But he strikes me as one of those guys you hate if he's playing for the opposition, but you really like that sort of stuff. And he he also (laughs) got cleaned out by Romero when the teams met in March in a kind of Brazil-Argentina uh, welcome to the game, which was quite entertaining. I mean, just on those numbers as well, Duncan, I mean, I, I mentioned this in a piece on Richarlison that from from the time Kudusevsky made his debut in February, three of the top four for combined goals and assists are Kane, Son and Kudusevsky with De Bruyne sandwiched in between Kane and Son at the top and then Kudusevsky fourth. So they already had three of the sort of most informed four forwards and they've gone out and signed another really good one. So it, it, that does feel like quite a big statement. All right. And they may be in for Clement Longley mm. of Barcelona. Perhaps less excitingly. I think Bailey featured yeah. seven starts last year for the Catalans. Is the bigger news then, Charlie, that their midfield signing, Yves Bissouma, has been cleared after uh, cleared of those sexual assault allegations? Yeah, well, I think that was yeah, a, a big a big relief. I mean I I think as most people speculated, Spurs wouldn't have made that signing unless they felt pretty confident about that but yeah hope you know hopefully for I think the feeling is that just hopefully for him they can move on and and look forward to what again and I've spoken about this before what I think is a a really really good signing as well Mm. all right Rafinha Tim are you a fan oh very very much so yes yeah wonderful player um one that uh in many ways I think you'll probably know better than than I do because when he, he he got his first Brazil call up less than a year ago he was he was an unknown here, and because he's he's one of an increasing quantity of Brazilian players who've made their career abroad. Um, so in in the course of less than forty five minutes, he came off the bench when they were losing and embarrassingly so to Venezuela. It was their worst moment in World Cup qualification, and he pretty much on his own transformed a, a one nil defeat into into a three one win. And in in the course of less than forty five minutes, he went from unknown to household name. Wow. All right, well, the current talk has him heading to Chelsea for £55 after a lot of uh, links with Arsenal. Barcelona, I believe, are still hovering, are they? Yeah, I think they... I mean, he Barcelona was his first choice. He really wanted to go there. Uh, Obviously, his agent is Deco, and there's that big link there. Deco did also play for Chelsea, uh, slightly less successfully. Although he scored that great goal against... Was it Portsmouth on his debut? Deco. is one himself the perfect start for the Portuguese playmaker and that just about wraps up the perfect afternoon for Chelsea but Arsenal really wanted him as well and and the noises at the start of the week were that they they were the front runners and then Chelsea have come in and it looks like you're going to pip them I mean it reminds me a little I always got the slight sense Arsenal might be pip because he you know, it was Barcelona's first choice, but he really wanted to play Champions League football, which they can't offer. And a bit like, how could they fit in both Gabriel Jesus and uh, and and Hafir? And th- this is part of the Gabriel Jesus debates. You know, he's been, he's he's been running away from the centre forward position and and has preferred to play wide right, cutting in, which is Hafir's thing. So, if they sign Gabriel Jesus, are they also in the market for Hafir? And if so, how would they plan to fit them both in? Well, and Bukayo Saka, who plays wide right. Um, mm. I mean, I think what was intriguing, what what excited Arsenal fans about this was that it seemed so crazy. It was like, that's crazy enough to work. I mean, they really, of the issues they have, 
it's not the most pressing one. And yet this idea of just buying loads of forwards and mm. kind of hoping it would work out, as, you know, obviously City have done that. Wenger, that used to be a staple of his, um, kind of signing very similar dainty attacking mids. Um, so I think the idea was that they would sign Rafinha and just have this stable of really fast, mobile, pressing machines and that it would all come together. Because I, I, I don't know... You know, often when a team misses out on their target, they then go to target number two or target number three. I don't mm. know if they will necessarily with this. I think Rafinha was a very, was someone Arteta really, really liked. And he was a specific target rather than them saying, we really need another fast dynamic forward. Okay. What, are there any chances of him staying on at Leeds for the World Cup year and Brazil chances, etc.? And if he does make the move to Chelsea, as seems increasingly likely, do you think that works? How does that fit together? Well, I think he will go, yeah. I mean, because I think he'll feel confident that wherever he goes, he'll get enough game time that it won't affect his World Cup chances. But they do, again, I mean, speaking of Arsenal not necessarily needing him, Chelsea have an incredible array of wide forwards and attackers. I mean, you know, especially Lukaku's gone, but he didn't play a whole lot anyway. And he was the kind of one focal point they had. Mm. Now they're a bit like Arsenal, really doubling down on those types of players, which does reflect as well, obviously, the fact there just aren't very many centre-forwards, you know, out-and-out centre-forwards. I think he's so, like Tim, I mean, I think he's a brilliant player. He's always, what him and Basuma were always ones I watched for the teams they were at and thought, they're, they're surely going to move soon. I mean, he, he he's electric, Rafinha. I mean, well, he does offer goals from long range as well. Only James Ward-Prowse has scored more from outside the box since Rafinha came to the, the Premier League. And if, there aren't really any Chelsea players high up in that list, um, which is su- slightly surprised me. You look at Chelsea's squad, but they haven't been that adept, and and I think it is something that's possibly goes a little bit, um, you know, unnoticed about what he can add to that team as well. So goals generally, though. I mean, wasn't it the season before last? Wasn't Jorginho their top league scorer with eight goals, all of which were penalties? Yeah. So I mean, they, they they for all their attacking players, they they do lack goal scorers. Mm. Possibly not anymore. Okay, West Ham are making progress, it says, in talks with Villarreal over signing Ana Danjuma. Minamino's off to Monaco. Origi's left Liverpool for Milan. Man United, this just in, are in talks for Frankie de Jong of Barcelona. Uh, transfer worth 65 million euros-ish, kind of rumbling on. De Jong's still hanging on to see if Brentford might be interested, I think, is the position... Mm. There, uh, Chelsea also in talks with City over Nathan Aki. Basically, other transfer things as well. For now, though, let me uh, pose this question posted in by Balakrishnan, who says to Duncan, "What's your take on Nathan Bishop linked with a low move to Wickham Wanderers?" Mm. Yeah, he's a young Manchester United keeper. Was on loan at Mansfield in, in League Two last season and uh, had a pretty good season. Who needs Pope when you can? call on bishop i think is the uh is the vibe that we're going for but um yeah right. obviously i think and this ecclesiastical shock... hierarchy fans are, are right now kind of raising eyebrows and <laughs> wow you know come at me um but um yeah i think it you know fans of wickham's direct play might be in for a slight shock next season i think they're gonna they're gonna try and pivot to a slightly more i say mm. slightly more uh expansive approach they're going to have to alter it, you know, because Bishop. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, keen to know what's happening with England's under-19s. We'll be discussing that and more exciting questions from you, listener. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The under-19s, they're in the final now. They beat Italy 2-1. Oh, it's gone in! It's brilliant from England. They've scored from a corner again. It's Jarrell Quanza. Uh, Alfie Devine, Charlie, impressing once again. Or Devine, sorry. Devine, yeah, Alfie Devine. Uh, yes, another assist uh, in that semi-final. He, he, he's a lovely player. 
and, and really does. He's looked to cut above under 23 level and he looks to cut above here. And he's playing with people, you know, mainly two years older than him. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a, a really exciting run for them. They've, they've looked very um, sort of coherent in the way they play. And I think I've got a really good chance of winning. winning in that Wow, final. they're up against Israel, who beat France in their semi and who've already been beaten 1-0 by England in this tournament in Slovakia. England poised them perhaps to be under-19 European champions, a title they previously picked up in 2017 when Mason Mount was player of the tournament and Ben Brereton was joint top scorer before he became Chilean. Mm. Michael Hill, uh, on the occasion of uh, Romelu Lukaku's return to Inter, his uh, season-long loan deal confirmed this week. He says, has there ever been a player going back and forth between teams as much as Romelu? Duncan, you're our man for figures. I mean, we've seen, obviously, Paul Pogba this summer. Mm. Yeah. Went mm. United, Juventus, United, Juventus. The the, the expert's favourite is obviously George McCartney, who went mm. um, Sunderland, West Ham, Sunderland, West Ham. Um, and almost equal spells at, at each time, which is... Which is odd, but neat. All right. Excellent. There's your answer. Richard Marks, call, if you, you were the... cameo role, if you go back and forth? That's for people who remember the uh, the uh, uh, 80s, uh, early 90s. Yeah. Are you cameo. referring to the wave your hands in the air and the way that... Is there a more specific... Is that what we're talking about here? Well, one of their hits was called Back and Forth. Was it? So, okay. Yes, which I, I feel may well have had a sexual uh, uh, connotation. <laughs> right, okay. Um, right. Always nice to get the cameo references. What's your number yeah, one cameo I mean, I, song? I always Tim? want like people in a in a cameo role to come in in a cod piece. But again, yes. all of my references are 1980s. No one gets them anymore. They become a mu- museum piece. No, you 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 feel at home here then, Tim. Uh, wonder what you can make with 80s music references and this question from Richard Marks. Yeah? <laughs> Who says if you're the Amazon production team, wow, one day maybe, uh, which club would you choose for an all-or-nothing fly-on-the-wall documentary this coming season? Which has the most dramatic potential? This, I suspect, inspired by the fact that Arsenal all-or-nothing, which would have been everybody's answer last season, surely, uh, the trailer for that launched on Tuesday afternoon. It's nice that these days we launch a trailer. I've seen it. Have you seen the trailer? Yeah. There's some yes, dramatic sure. words from Arteta in the dressing room. There's some... Scenes of players looking angry and then some celebrations and player got yeah. cro- Aaron Ramsdale got crossing through a shirt down. It's uh, yeah, yeah. How's that going to turn out? I can't wait to see. Anyway, that it, it is quite funny because they they obviously have to tweet it and big it up mm. when it is a sort of very disappointing story ultimately for them. Like, right, be slightly through gritted teeth. With who who would you have for this season? Then doesn't have to be Premier League. I mean, Manchester I mean, United we- feels like the the one. Mm. I mean, in terms of pure, what? let's see what the dressing room actually is like on a daily basis. You're not going to get that from an All or Nothing documentary. But, no, true. Um, ass- assuming you do, assuming there there is a bit more. Uh, I mean, Barcelona, I'd be quite interested to know what's actually going no. on at that club. There's been um, tremendous interest over uh, Eric Ten Hag's first appearance on the training field. At Carrington, uh, wh- why do you think that was? What was so remarkable about that cameo, if you, if you will, <laughs> if you will entrance? I must confess, I haven't actually seen that. Have you not? He comes out, uh, moving tremendously naturally as he does, says hello to the cameraman, and uh, you know, assembled journalists, and then directs the players. But yeah, I, I, I'm not the world's greatest tactical mind, so there's a bit of kind of pointing to which side he wants passes to, that kind of thing. But the reaction on social media was very much, wow, Man United, their players are oh, really yeah. in for a shock once this guy gets through with him. That's very much a staple of club football now is, you know, like a new manager will come in and they'll show a bit of training footage and fans are like, oh, yeah, he just gets it. And, you know, there's... Remember Roy Hodgson's assist in training last oh, yeah. season when he played a lovely three ball and turned out that that didn't augur a happy relationship with the with the Watford fans. But um, yeah, it's just, it's I don't think you can tell much from a ten second clip of training. Okay, I mean, isn't the thing with Ten Hag he's he is quite wooden and sort of a bit lacking in charisma. Hmm. 
So I, I guess all eyes were on that and seeing how he interacted with people on the training ground. Right, right. Well, as you say, perhaps more significant moments to come in that particular relationship. David Resnick asks if a player's politics ever influences your appreciation of their on-field performance. Case in point, says David, I've never been able to watch Lucas Moura with the same joy since I discovered he publicly supports Bolsonaro. Tim, this is a pretty much universal problem with Brazilian players, isn't it? Who have we got just... who's not pro-Bolsonaro? I don't know. Uh, not not many. Not many, Benny. Although the tide has turned, I think. I, mean, okay. I can't see how he's, how he's going to be re-elected. I can, in in a way, if you're not particularly politicised, I can I can almost give you a pass for four years ago. Uh, I will be interested in in a, in a couple of now former players. I'm not going to name them. That will be a little bit cruel, who uh, publicly supported Bolsonaro, and, and and have since had to bury parents who've died because of COVID. Uh, I wonder if that's altered their perceptions, or wow. are they happy to remain imbeciles? I don't know. It's a very interesting question, though. I mean, there that is something, you know, now when you see players who you really liked when they played, they're now shilling some NFT scam. You really wish you didn't know that because <laughs> um, it, it's hard for that not to slightly affect. We'll move on, listener. Eh? Good question, though. Abdullah Bashiti with the second part of his question is, who does Tim think should be the attacking trio of the Brazilian national team? Tim. Well, they've they've uh, you can file this one under nice problem to have mm. because as it's set up, they've always had someone missing, and, and well, I don't really know what they're going to go with unless they try and sneak twelve on the field and hope that the referee doesn't ma- th- th- doesn't notice because they've got two open wingers and Hafia and and Vinicius Junior, Neymar obviously. Lucas Paqueta, who's got a sweet thing going with Neymar and is 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 very, very versatile. And the option of a centre forward could it looks as if his Charleston is is in the lead for, for, for that one. Although he does really play in blinkers and he, he you know he, he only looks at the goal, which is why he work, he, he might work well with, with with Kane making the bullets for, for him to fire. But they've got Mateus Cunha at Atletico Madrid, who's emerged as probably the, the closest thing they've got to a to a genuine nine. Now, if if you throw all of those players in together, how are you going to balance the side out? You have to get rid of someone, and I don't know who, possibly the centre forward. Or there's an option where you play Paquetar a little bit deeper as the second man in midfield, the role which has been filled very, very well in the national team by, by Fredji, the much maligned Fredji of, of, of Man United in recent times. But do you trust Paquetar to do that? Uh, he, he does showboat a little bit close to goal. He can give the ball away close close to goal. So uh, the, the coach, the last time I spoke to him, he still wasn't sure. And he's had those couple of friendlies that beat South Korea 5-1 with a centre-forward. They beat Japan 1-0 without the centre-forward. It's nice to have options. And I don't think there'll necessarily be one way of, of starting. Ideally, I think he would like to have his, his two open wingers, Hafinha and, and Vinicius. Uh, if not, then you can play Paquita wide cutting in. You can have a, 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 an out-and-out winger one side and, and, and Paquita, who's extremely versatile and can fill kind of three positions in, in one game. So he he's your joker in the pack. But as it stands, you don't you don't really know, which you, you would have to file under the cliche, nice problem to have. Uh, and it's really significant how many of these people have just emerged in, in within the last 12 months, you know, since they lost the Copa America at home to, to Argentina. Hafi has come into the side as if he's never been away. Uh, Vinicius has, has emerged as, as a global star. All of this is good news. I mean, this this helps take the pressure off off Neymar in the tournament, which will be the defining moment of his career in the eyes of of, of his compatriots. So uh, I, I suspect it might be a little bit of a horses for courses approach, as I suppose it was in the in the last World Cup in two thousand and two that they won. You know, in two thousand and two. When they had a very, very easy group phase and, and played uh, Juninho, the Middlesbrough Juninho, uh, and uh, the, the key transition then as the games got harder was swapping him in for for the more all-round, the more defensive, I suppose, Cleberson, which worked really well. So uh, I suspect there might be a horses-for-courses approach. 
five months till the World Cup and a lot of excitement building around this Brazil side. 94th minute, meanwhile, says 30th of June is the anniversary of Germany winning Euro 96 with Oliver Bierhoff's deflected golden goal. What is the pod's most memorable scuffed or unpretty goal? Ooh, that's a tough one. Does anything leap into your minds? There's one um, Iron Robbins winner in the 2013 Champions League final. He really scuffs that, and it's one of those that he scuffs it so much that it completely wrong foots the keeper. And it was quite a redemptive goal because he'd missed the penalty the previous year when they somehow found a way to lose to Chelsea. So, and yeah, so that's one that sticks in my mind. All right. There's one I've got, which I've never been sure about. And it's continuing the German theme with, with Oliver, Oliver Bierhoff. Uh, it was my, the first world cup that I was old enough to follow, which was 74. And it was the goal from Gert Muller that won it. You know, Muller, Muller again, 2-1. And he, he, he kind of swivels. And I've never been sure if he kind of scuffed it and it was a little bit of luck, but his track record would seem to indicate it could have been the other conclusion, which mm. he was an absolute finishing genius who realised you don't have to break the back of the net to score a goal. All you have to do is get it over the line. But I've never right. been sure. Okay. I mean, the, the famous line, he's hit that, if anything, too well, mm. suggests that sometimes the scuff mm. is the, the best yeah. option for the... Surely- the best scuff ever, surely, is Robert Perez's uh, ill-fated penalty pass to Thierry Henry against Manchester City, which is the most panicked moment I've ever seen on a football <laughs> pitch. And obviously the, the story goes that they, in training they'd done it the other way around and Henry had, had passed to Perez. And then in the game, they, Henry decided to switch it around and, uh, yeah, that was the result. Danny Mills so. up in his grill. <laughs> yeah. After. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the 30th of June 1996, as the 94th minute I mentioned, uh, is the day that Germany won the Euro 96 final 2-1 over the Czech Republic with Oliver Bierhoff with the extra time golden goal. They think it's Oliver it is now, as the commentator should have said that day. Also, on the 30th of June, there are plenty of other big, big games, including the infamous 1998 second round clash in France between England and Argentina, 2-2 at half-time. Then David Beckham shown red for that kick-out at Diego Simeone. And then it goes to penalties, where again, David Batty's kick provides the inspiration for noted 90s nostalgia podcast fest. Quickly, Kevin, will he score? Which wasn't actually the dialogue over that crucial spot kick. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Argentina go through and England go out. Wow, what what a moment. Kevin Keegan and Brian Moore there, famously. Well, a couple of things stand out in that game. One was the disallowed Sol Campbell goal for a pretty phantom offence in England. Although I say that, that was how I felt at the time. I don't know looking back if actually... It is a bit soft. Yeah, but I remember I went mad just like running around the house in celebration, obviously then had to come back. Did and, Darren and since- Anderton run through your living room? At place <laughs> <and get> back? <laughs> and, but since then, I've always been really afraid of that happening again. So, you know, whenever goals go in at games I'm at, I was like straight over to the offside flag to see if there's mm. any reason why we can't celebrate. And obviously now in the age of VAR, mm. you really can't celebrate. But yeah, this was a sort of forerunner for that. And just that sense of fatalism that even when England play well, something will somehow go wrong. But, but that is one of the most extraordinary passages of play of football. Yes, that you'll yeah. see Because it, for people that don't know, England thought they'd scored and half the team runs over to celebrate with Sol Campbell. And then Argentina take the free kick. And basically England have got two or three players who've spotted what's going on. And Darren Anderton, not a man often praised for his you know, fitness and athleticism, although I think that's unfair, um, sprints the length of the pitch to basically stop Argentina from, from scoring, which is uh, impressive. But it was one of those games that just... Was Paul Marson on by that point as well? And I feel like he was sort of... Chugging yeah. back, <laughs> trying to help out. Yeah, well. maybe not as fast, but he definitely <laughs> had, had spotted the danger, just maybe wasn't as, as well placed to, to stop it. But it is one of those games that, that had everything from, you know, brilliant goals. I mean, the Argentina second goal, that free kick, oh. I pretty mm. much had only ever seen that in Roy of the Rovers until that point. You know, it was like 
you know, the sort of dummy man peeling off the wall and just passed to him. It was, you know, I'm surprised Wasn't it doesn't get one... tried more often. Well, Sweden did one of the 94 World Cup, which I think Thomas Brodin scored. And I remember it was one of those things that because obviously as is well documented, foot, the, the football you could watch was a lot more sparse. And, and I just remember watching that, not even live, but highlights of the 94 World Cup like years later, and we're like, oh my God, there's this incredible manoeuvre that Sweden did. Like Someone should try that. And then the, the, Argent, the word must have got out to Argentina, and, and they then did it. Um, they had that VHS as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Well, Zinex exactly said, that. I think, that they'd worked on it for four years, but that was the first time it had succeeded. So... Given that timeline, maybe they had spot. They maybe they watched the Sweden goal and were like, "We'll have a bit of that." Exactly. And England were like, "Ah, we don't need to watch any goals by other teams; they'll never affect us." And then, uh, yeah, lo and behold, fine margins, eh? Fine margins. Well, loads of other stuff has happened on the thirtieth of June, including Brazil winning that two thousand and two World Cup that Tim was mentioning before, two 0 over Germany. Just shows you what an early World Cup. That was, wasn't it? It's one of the mm. reasons it was such, yeah. a, such a terrible World Cup. Yes. That, uh, it was held early in order mm. to avoid the rainy season in, in that, that part of the world. And it came after the European season, which where the Champions League had had that two group stages. Uh, mm. And you could see that pretty much everyone who played the European season was absolutely on their knees. Mm. Uh, with the exception of Brazil and physical preparation, uh, which was Brazil had a had a massive lead in physical preparation at, at this time, which helped them win win the World Cup. Um, but it was a terrible World Cup, and you, you only you have to look at the teams that progressed, uh, yeah. and 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 how much poorer they were than the teams that were left behind, just because they just couldn't put one foot in in front of the other. So it was a it, it was a very bad World Cup. Although if if you like your shocks and and your upsets. Aficionados of shocks and upsets uh, had, right. uh, had a field day. Yeah, Man, and I think that's why it was a really bad... I, I agree. I think it's a really cautionary tale for those who want loads of upsets because mm. yeah. Yeah, upsets are yeah. great if you have a couple of them, but there were too many. Yeah, and then the, you'd have the awful quarters and semis. Yeah. And, and I, in the group like, stage, everyone was like, this is amazing. This is yeah, what exactly. Want. And then it yeah. was the knockout. So it was like, oh no, what have we yeah. watched for? It's like, oh, yeah, all the good teams to watch have gone and we're left watching kind of you know, Senegal, Turkey and things like that, which, you know. But there were those games like South Korea, Spain, that which was nil-nil and there were those disallowed goals. And mm. it was a re- after yeah. 98, which had been so good, it, it was a real letdown. Ger- that awful Germany team who England had beaten 5-1 getting to the final. And they, yeah. they beat well, South Korea, didn't they, in the semi? And, and Germany kind of uh, acting afterwards on the knowledge that they were shit, even though they'd reached the World Cup final. Yeah. No. <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah. The, uh, the 2002 World Cup final, not a favourite then on the Totally Show, but, ooh, excitingly, The Athletic has a special podcast out on that very tournament. It features the likes of James Horncastle, George Corkin, who's in a lift with Ronaldo, and Adam Hurry with his top five moments from the tournament. That, I believe, is out right now. The Athletic Football Podcast special on the 2002 World Cup. A little bit later on in this show, we're going to be looking at one of our favourites. And it's a doozy. That and more coming up next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one-legged bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Listener, question that you've been struggling with throughout the podcast so far is when are they going to get on to the athletic.com's excellent series Premier League's 50 best ever performances the time is now Charlie Eccleshare today we got up to 34 and this one's been penned by you it is mm. Emmanuel Adebayor for his extraordinary performance in Spurs' 5-0 win over Newcastle in February 2012 that's a Sahar Adebayor just about perfection from Tottenham today. And the man who's deserved a goal has finally got a goal. Charlie, 
309,949 options to choose from. Why did you pick this? Hmm. Well, this was uh, Adebayor at his best. I mean, Adebayor was a very... His ceiling was very high, but his floor could be pretty low. He was one of those mm. type strikers. But this was one of those days where he was absolutely on it. Four assists. I think he was the fourth person only to do that. Um, and a few have done it since. But it's a pretty rare thing to do. And he scored. Good goal, and no. it, it was when Spurs were... With this win, they went only five points behind United, who were top. They were playing incredible football. Uh, it was before it kind of all fell apart for them a bit that season. But yeah, it was Adebayor, who I think is a really interesting Premier League striker. Like he he came in 2006 uh, at a time where Drogba had led this movement towards playing with just one up top. And he could do that Adebayor really, really well. And there were days where he was just amazing. And he had that season in 2007-8 where he got 30 in all comps, 24 in the league, and, you know, looked like sort of genuine Henri successor. You know, ne- never as polished, but he was, you know, he was very effective for Arsenal. Then it kind of fell away a bit for him there. Obviously, City didn't quite work out. So by the time Spurs signed him, it was seen as a bit of a punt. And I spoke to Harry Redknapp, who was the manager there, and it was a kind of perfect red nappy signing he you know he compared it to like when he brought De Canio to West Ham or Paul Merson to Portsmouth you know this slight kind of maverick who others didn't want but he backed himself to put the arm around the shoulder and get the best out of him and, and I think he did with Adebayor you know, he had a really good season this season scored a couple against Liverpool uh, scored against Chelsea as Spurs looked like they were going to you know have a finish really strongly and ended up still getting fourth but then it was the season Chelsea won the Champions League so they didn't make it. He got 11 assists that season. He never managed mm. more than four. I mean, obviously getting four in a game helps when you're using that total, but he never got more than four in any of his other Premier League seasons. But I think, yeah, he's one of those, like, slightly forgotten how good he was. I remember once he had, like, 11, was it 11 shots against West Brom in a game once. He, wow. obviously the only player to ever score a hat-trick home and away against the same opponent in a season. Um, that was Derby, yes, wasn't that it? that was Derby, yeah. Yeah, but the worst Derby team ever. And you mentioned it as well, that, that four assists in a game thing is incredibly North London thing to yeah. do because it's like Burkamp, Reyes, Fabregas, Adeboyor for Spurs, Cazorla uh, for Arsenal, and then Harry Kane did it, and then Paul Pogba yeah. ruined it last season. But none of those players won the league in that, in that campaign. So it's, um, it's a little bit of a, a false dawn. Mm. Speaking of Harry Redknapp, meantime, as you kind of touch on in, in your piece about that performance, it wasn't the only thing that was rosy no. for him, uh, Adeboyor's... Performance. He'd just been cleared off that tax evasion uh, case. Do you remember when it turned out that his dog Rosie had actually been operating the Rosie Forty Seven? Ro- Rosie Forty Seven had actually been operating the uh, the Monaco bank accounts, and it was nothing to do with with Harry. Well, there, there was this amazing day that that happened, and then Capello resigned as England manager, and Redknapp was someone like one to ten on to get it. And at that game, the Newcastle five nil out of by all four assists game. It was all about Harry Redknapp. The fans were singing, you know, we want you to stay throughout. Afterwards, all the players, all they were asked was about Redknapp's future and him, them saying how desperate they were for him to stay. I mean, it's incredible how, you know, quickly then things changed because then the FA opted to go with Hodgson. And then a few months later, Spurs were very unlucky not to get Champions League having got fourth and he was sacked. Um, and, and I do think there is an element to which he is how well he did at Spurs is slightly overlooked. You know, he came in and obviously he made the point very often, two points from eight games when he came in, but he did stabilise and then got them fourth, fifth, and in the fifth season, Champions League quarter finals and then fourth again. And playing really exciting football. I, I know the sort of stereotype about him was that he just said to them, go out and run around a bit. But I don't think you get those sort of results if that's if that's all you're doing. And, th- and this performance was kind of the high watermark in a, in a way because Newcastle were good that season. They came fifth. They were going for the top four. And, and Spurs could just overwhelm teams with Modric, Bale, Van der Vaart, and then Adebayor up front. Hmm. Well, you can read Charlie's piece about that Adebayor performance on theathletic.com right now. They're calling it the most entertaining Tottenham account since Harry's back, you know, sorry, Rosie 49's back in the day. Anyway... Favourite World Cup, Andy Jennings got in touch with us here at The Totally Show. He says, I appreciate it. It is improbable that any of the pod were there to see it. Thanks. But could Brazil 1950 get a mention in your World Cup reminiscing 
England nil, USA won, players injured by incomplete stadiums and a huge final upset, says Andy Jennings, could well be a foretaste of Qatar. I like the topical spin there, Andy. I'm not sure I remember too much about the players injured by incomplete stadiums, but we got Tim Vickery right here with us. So, Tim, I'm not sure if this is a tournament they talk much about in Brazil, do they? Yes, there's, there's an element of self-flagellation in this one where books have been written on just the final or the, the last game where Brazil only needed a draw. Um, a few books have been written from the Brazilian side. I think perhaps more has been written from the Brazilian side than from the Uruguayan side uh, in, a, in an unhealthy spirit of, of, of self-flagellation. It is, I mean, I've, I've just been not long ago writing a, a chapter of a, of a book about upsets. So I've listened to the radio commentary of the game three times. So I do feel that, that, that I was there. It's doubtful, I think, that a game of football has ever has ever meant more. You're talking about um, England USA, yeah? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, uh, when that scoreline came in, uh, somebody uh, the English press thought it was a misprint, and it was really ten one, ten one, rather than one nil, one nil to the one uh, nil to the, the the plucky Americans. Yeah, when the the it was a whole project of Brazil. Although it's the first post-war World Cup, there's mm. a real 1930s feel about the thing because uh, the, the dominant kind of ideology in, in Brazil at the time had hugely influenced by Mussolini in a, in a kind of relatively benign, non-militaristic type of fascism and hugely in, in, uh, influenced by the, the World Cup of 1934. Uh, so it was, it was a double-pronged thing where we're going to organise the World Cup and build this huge stadium, like a giant spaceship just parked to the north of the city, the Maracanã, and take football all around the country in a way that hadn't been ever been done with the Copa Americas that have, that have been held in the country before. So part one is, is, is to do the infrastructure work and part two is to win it. And they, that they were seen as absolutely joint and together. The, uh, the mayor of, uh, of Rio, one of the great tradition of, uh, of uh, military imbecility. Uh, he made this point to the players on the field before the uh, the opening game of the World Cup. You know, the state has done its bit. We've built the stadium. Now it's up to you to do your bit and win the bloody thing, you know, which uh, I, I talked to the players nearly, some of the players nearly half a century later and the, the, their bitterness at that was, uh, was, was really, really strong. Andy there mentions upset and... The chapter I wrote is a book dedicated to upsets. It's only an upset from two perspectives. One is subsequent developments, almost inevitably, you know, a nation with a population these days of around 210 million has outperformed a nation with a population of three and a half million. Mm. Um, the other is from the perspective of the previous seven days. Uh, it was played in a final pool, which was a, a traditional South American system where you you have more games and therefore more more gate revenue to offset the travel costs with uh, Brazil, Uruguay, Sweden and Spain. Um, going into that final pool, Spain was certainly seen on the same level as, as Brazil and, and, and Uruguay. Sweden uh, a little bit less so. Uh, and uh, Brazil hammered Sweden and Spain while Uruguay drew with one and, and narrowly beat the other. Um, so from the perspective of those results over the previous week, Brazil were expected, clearly, certainly by their own compatriots, to win. From mm. any other perspective, there's no, there's no upset about it. Uh, in a warm, Uruguay had never lost a World Cup game. Uruguay had won many more Copa Americas than than, than Brazil had. Uruguay had an enormous footballing um, tradition, and 72 days before that that big game. Uruguay had beaten Brazil in a, in a warm-up when Uruguay didn't even have a coach at the time. So, uh, and and um, it was a fantastic side, that Uruguay side. A really fantastic side. Uh, a, a, an experienced defensive unit and a new generation of strikers who were on their way to do great things, some of them in, in Italy, um, going to uh, Shafino and, and Gigia. Uh, Miguez was a, was a wonderfully talented player. They only had one group game. Uruguay, because only 13 teams turned up. Right. And the draw had been done before this. 
Um, so they didn't want to do a redraw because they wanted Brazil to play as many games as possible. So if, if Brazil's in a group with four, brilliant. Brazil's got three games. That's three games at a packed stadium. We can make we can make some coin. Um, so Uruguay, they ended up in a group with only one team and lots of teams pulled out. France could have come in. The teams that pulled out is a fascinating little sidebar on this. France, who were offered a place after Turkey, who had qualified, yeah. decided not to do it because I think the laborious travel schedule, France felt the same way about it. Argentina yeah. withdrew during the qualifying stage because they had a bit of a fallout, not for the first time, with the Brazilian Football Confederation. India. And also there's the strike, the strike of 49, which takes oh, okay. Argentina's best players to, to Colombia. Right. He said, not being entirely sure what that was about, but that sounds like a subject <laughs> maybe for another day. That was basically Argentina's footballers all left and went to Colombia. So you, you know all about Richarlison's GX statistics, but you don't know anything about the Argentine player strike in 1949. Uh, Shame I the same amount yeah. about both of them, Tim, I'm happy to say. <laughs> but um, the teams that didn't show up uh, also included India, although not because they weren't allowed to play in bare feet, apparently. That's a myth. It was lack of preparation time. And Scotland. Mm. Scotland was funny because this was obviously the first World Cup where the, the UK nations deigned to grace the world with their superior football knowledge and skill. And um, they, they decided to use the home championship, which was big back in the day, as the qualifiers with two places up for grabs. England... We're like, yeah, we'll first or second, we'll we'll go to the World Cup. Scotland said only if we win win the home championships will we go, and they came second. So I don't think they'd do that these days. I don't think they'd turn down a <laughs> World Cup spot on a technicality. Mm. Well, as you say, then Tim, only thirteen teams. Who was the only one who who pitched up in in Uruguay's group? It was Bolivia, and huh? uh, Uruguay played them on the same ground. I think it was three days after. Uh, England had just lost to the United States in, in Belo Horizonte. Um, Uruguay played them and beat them 8-0. And uh, the, the, the Bolivia coach was an Argentine. He said, you know, this team's well capable of, of winning the World Cup. Brazil hadn't looked particularly impressive in the group stage. So going into that final pool at that stage, for Uruguay to beat Brazil is not an upset. So it's only an upset from the results in that group stage and in the light of subsequent events. Well, this was the all-South American final game of this tournament, although not technically a final itself. Brazil only needed a draw, took the lead in the game, and we're preparing to celebrate when uh, Uruguay snatched victory from uh, their grasp and the World Cup title uh, in a result described as our Hiroshima. That was by Nelson Rodriguez, who's a great playwright and... and the most influential football writer because he was so good at narrative. But isn't that a declaration of insanity? I mean, it's a, it's a declaration mm. of insanity all these years after Hiroshima. But to say this, uh, I think he didn't write that until a few years later. But still, you know, when the world... You're within and, a decade of... Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, br br you know br Brazil lost people in the Second World War. You know, it came in in the Second, Second World War. To, to compare a football game to to uh, to something like that, it, it it really is. I mean, there's a lot of emotional un un unbalance here, a lot of a lot of swagger from Brazil to kind of drown out inner insecurities, and that that that's part of the drama behind this game. It's part of the the manic depressive approach they still have to the, this game today. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're brilliant. We're unstoppable. Oh, we're shit. We'll never amount to anything. And you, you see the oscillations between these two points all the time. Well, that's in no way familiar to supporters from other other nations. But all the stories around that final, you dispelled some of the myths there, Tim, but the, the victory celebrations before that final game, the, the suicides after, how much of, it, of that is true? Well, the victory celebrations are pretty much true. Uh, and the uh, we're back to our friend, the military mayor again. Uh, who before the final he he declared Brazil world champions? The gods of football hate stuff like this, don't they? Mm. <laughs> Hubris. Uh, yes, yes. The suicides. I don't know. I've never been able to put a figure on that. But I do know. I mean, back in the back in the kind of late nineties, I used to do stuff for uh, a sadly lamented sports paper, kind of pinken sports paper that was that was really important. And there was this lovely sweet old guy who um, he ran the archive. 
you know, and Sir uh, Ojmar, uh, lovely, sweet old guy he was. And he told me that he'd been at that game uh, and he, he found the pain so great that he never went back to the Manakana. And we're talking now 47 years after the game. So the, the, the uh, it, it is undoubtedly true that it left a huge, huge mark on the national psyche. But the suicides thing, I don't know how much of that is urban myth. Right. It, it also saw Brazil change their strip. The they white did. jersey yeah. abandoned forever. Uh, the World Cup 1950 was kind of brought to you by Hubris because Brazil were by no means the only favourites who went crashing out in a historic defeat there was also the aforementioned usa one england nil you know the, the, the brazil coach flavio costa who uh-huh. uh, was was still around late 90s I, I had the chance to get to know him he'd, he'd flown over which was you know massive budget that brazil had brazil's preparation left no stone unturned and he'd flown over and he'd watched that home international game uh uh park between scotland and england and uh, two things really stuck in his mind. Number one is that people had given him chocolate despite the rationing. You know, he was really touched by the fact that people had given him chocolate. And the other was he came back uh, saying wonderful things about the England team. And he really thought England were, were, were going to be amongst the... Uh, uh, he, he saw England as, as the principal threat, I think. What, I think he probably had seen England with, with Neil Franklin in the, in the team, who... Uh, the, some rate as England's greatest ever centre half, who then decamped to Colombia, along oh, right. with uh, all, all the great Argentine talent. You know, he, he went off to Colombia, but uh, yeah, he, he came back telling, uh, saying, telling his players wonders about the England team. Possibly, you also saw Stanley Matthews in that England side. Stanley Matthews, who didn't play, was left out of the starting lineup against USA that day in Belo Horizonte, and then of course couldn't come on because there were no substitutes. In those far-off times, England, who were known as the kings of football, it's the first time, as uh, Duncan mentioned, that they bothered to turn up for the World Cup. The notion was that Alf Ramsey, Jimmy Dickinson, Tom Finney, Sam Mortensen and Stanley Matthews would bring the cup home. But instead, they get beaten by a USA team comprising mailmen, a funeral director, uh, a mill worker teacher and a dishwasher called Joe Gachins who in the 37th minute deflects a shot from Walter Barr, past goalkeeper Burt Williams for the game's only goal. No film exists of that goal, but there is a film of that game. It's called Game of Their Lives, or in some markets, Miracle Match, released in 2005. Where's Bentley, Gerard Butler in there? Gavin Rossdale, yeah? He's in it. Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, and... A certain Tim Vickery. Plenty of forward movement for them as the throne is taken, taken to the captain, Walter Barr. Shot comes in on the turn from Walter Barr. Yes! It's in there! It's in there! The United States have taken the lead! Tim, you're in this film. Yeah, I had a hell of a supporting cast, didn't I? <laughs> um, the, the people behind this film had done Oscar-winning films on sports. Okay. Uh, uh, Hoosiers and there's another right, one yeah. um, Gene Hackman and they, yeah they, they had huge hopes for this they never really got the budget together uh, and uh, it ended up being being a disappointment but it's a good tale to tell I think of of kind of team building the way that, that two separate parts in, in, in the United States the United States in the way that they, they came together to, to, to kind of form a team uh, and this was obviously their finest hour. And it, it wasn't all over for England as a result of losing this game. They then lost to Spain in, in the Maracanã. And that, that was that was the result that, that eliminated England. And, and, and talking to the... Uh, uh, I talked to some of the, the Brazil team who watched this on TV and couldn't, just couldn't believe their eyes. They talked about an English side without, without a heart, without a soul. An English side that was unable to dig deep enough um, to, uh, to were they to, worn to, out after a long league season? Do you feel? Well, perhaps, perhaps, but also Carabao Cup they w- kicking in as usual. <laughs> <laughs> they, they weren't as good as. Uh, it, it, it's striking how long it takes England to get up to speed in World Cups, isn't it? I know that fifty-eight is obviously torpedoed by 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 Munich, um, but it's it's only in sixty-two when they lost to Brazil in the quarterfinals of sixty-two. I think the players there came back with the idea that, you know, we're not far off. 
we were organisationally in absolute shambles and it still took a, a, an unbelievable display from from, from Gahincha to get the world champions past us in, in, in the quarterfinals. So that, that took, you know, that's a process of 12 years and, and, and four World Cups. And I wonder about this. I was having a chat recently with, a, with someone who's writing a book on looking at African football, how much of a problem that's been to Africa with so few slots available in the World Cup. It's been harder for the African teams to build up that, that momentum of experience, if you like, because quite often the African qualifiers from one World Cup to the next are totally different. So you're not getting that, 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 that accumulation of experience that England were able to have between 50 and 66. The reason that Stanley Matthews didn't play in that USA game was because oh, he yeah. was a bit tired because another England team had been touring Canada. I'm not saying they weren't taking the World Cup <laughs> totally seriously, but yeah, I think that, that speaks to Tim's point there that it took, I think for a long time, they kind of thought they just had to turn up and, and they were right. in and, and realised that, oh no, look, these other countries have prepared adequately for, for this Yeah, they, they didn't fly out early to acclimatise either. They did their preparations at Dog Kennel Hill, home of Dulwich Hamlet, mm -hmm. and then flew out on a 31-hour journey. Steep, One of the players moaned about the conditions and he moaned about the altitude of Rio. Uh, and right. uh, when I look over there and I see the sea, uh, <laughs> it, looks, it looks pretty much like sea level to me. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing to mention, and, and you referenced to... Munich and the impact on the England side was Italy, who yeah. arrived. This was only two years after the Suburga air disaster had, had wiped out um, nine elevenths of their starting lineup with, with, with the great Torino team. And as a result, and this is a story we've touched on before, the kind of trauma was so great that they couldn't countenance using air travel to get their, t you know, to, to, entrusting their team to airplanes. So they sent them across on a ship with the net result that they spent, I don't know, two weeks on a boat, jogged around the the deck a couple of times and arrived massively out of shape, promptly lost against Sweden and immediately exited the tournament, at which point the Italian FA said, well, you can fly home then. I'm not, not particularly bothered about you anymore. So they did. Anyway, there you go. Crikey, uh, Charlie, you've got to get on to some tennis business. Mm. Best of luck with that, Charlie, and many thanks for being with us today. Tim, thank you so much for being up at this extremely early hour. It's a great pleasure Janeiro. because uh, you've you've now afforded me one of the one of the great pleasures of life, which is the capacity to go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. A bit of a nod to World Cups of yore, mm. where we had to get up at kind of mm. unusual hours. I mean, twenty two, the two thousand two World Cup was famously the World Cup of you're probably having your breakfast back home. From Tell Johnson. me about it. With a four hour time difference, you know, we had some of the games were at two o'clock. Mm. You know, I think it was the, you know. They were like seven o'clock. You, you, you can't have football at this time in the morning. It, 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 it puts you right, all off kilter, doesn't it? It's wrong. Mm. It does feel I, odd. I, I saw the um, Brazil-England game in Rio, actually, uh, Tim, and, and, and then took to the streets afterwards to mingle with the crowd. It was yeah, very interesting. But th th there was a problem, wasn't there? You go too early. You've paced yourself all wrong, and then by midday, you're just a you're just a, a hulking wreck of an individual. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I, I've said this before in the pod, I think, but the, the most out of control I've ever seen the city of London, the entire city, was that lunchtime after the England-Argentina game in the 2002 World Cup, where it, like everyone was drunk in the whole of London. People, special memories. <laughs> special. All right. Well, there'll be more special World Cup memories and more uh, Duncan Alexander uh, in a podcast to come. For now, though, Duncan, thank you as well for being with us today and listener, especially to you, as well as a big shout out to our special guest producer today, Abby, who's going to be in charge of Monday's show as well. Do have a good weekend and join us for Monday's edition. For now, from all of us, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.